Thanks, Phil, and good morning, everyone. Let's take a moment. We'll pray together, and then we'll look at this uh, text. Father, we'd just like to thank you that we can gather here within these walls, listening for your voice. I pray, Father, that we wouldn't uh, simply hear words that would kind of stimulate our intellect or something like that. Our desire, Father, is that you would shape us through the revelation of your Holy Spirit to be people of hope in the world. And we're mindful in this moment of the the desperation and anger and cynicism that we swim in every day that sometimes we're party to. So would you shape us, Father, to be kingdom people? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as I shared with you in this sabbatical show and tell, I started a YouTube channel, and uh, it's not a big deal, but what's been funny to me is as soon as you do that, Computer powers know, and I start getting emails, how to get more followers, get a million followers in one month, and go to, here's a seminar. There's a free virtual online clinic on how to build your platform, and oh, you're an influencer, blah, blah, blah. So um, that's happened, and what's intriguing me is not that that's happened. I kind of expected it. What's intriguing is how different Jesus is. Mark 1, Jesus does a miracle. What does he say? Don't tell anyone. Uh, Mark 2, don't tell anyone what just happened. Mark 7, uh, you know, another miracle. Uh, The pigs and the demon guy, don't tell anyone. Mark 8, right here in this chapter that we're in today, uh, he he has a guy born blind, and he says, go straight home, don't tell anyone. And then in this text, who do people say that I am? Oh, you know, John Baptist, Elijah, a teacher, a prophet. Who do you say I am? You're the Christ. Good, but don't tell anyone. Like, who does that, right? That's kind of, if you don't ask that question, then you don't sit with the text long enough to understand the significance of Jesus' uh, exhortation to silence. And I think that that exhortation to silence is significant because if we can understand why Jesus is this way at this time, we gain a foundationally important revelation that'll cause us to reframe our definition our definition of uh, success as Christ followers, basically, right? So, so the context here of John 8 is this. Jesus' ministry is in full swing. He's just fed 4,000. And then it cracks me up. That's a pretty cool miracle, feeding 4,000. And, and then the, the Pharisees are like this. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, if you show us a sign, then we'll believe. And I'm like, really? A sign? okay. That wasn't good enough for you? Apparently not. That frustrated Jesus. So he gets in the boat with the disciples and says to them, hey, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples think that Jesus is kind of passive-aggressively upset with them because they forgot to bring bread in the boat. So he gets frustrated with them too. And he says, "Uh, are your hearts hard? And then he heals the blind guy that we just heard about and essentially tells him, not to talk to anyone, because he says, just enter the village, go straight home. And then he asks his disciples about his identity among the people, and they respond, right? So if we pick it up here, he says, who do people say that I am? They say, you know, John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. So, you know, right there, we're just going to stop for a minute, and I'm going to give you these categories. Jesus embodies here Two significant categories of people who swam upstream against prevailing culture and call people to a higher life, uh, teachers and prophets. And, and because he did this, he's associated with those two categories. So that's all good. 
And then he asks who they think he is, and Peter speaks, verse 29, you're the Christ, or in the Matthew parallel passage, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Very powerful word. Uh, And my anticipated response to Peter's answer at that moment would be this. If I'm Jesus, I'm like this. Finally, somebody gets it. Good. Now, go tweet that. Uh, Start a campaign. We're going to, you know, rent some billboards and put Jesus as Christ and then we're going to have big meetings at the end. We're going to get everybody saved because now you finally understand who I really am. And instead, what does Jesus say in the text? He says, uh, don't tell anyone about me. That's weird to me, right? Completely contrary to you know, our culture, which, I mean, had Gonzaga won, we'd be talking about it this morning, right? But they didn't, and so we don't because it's bad news instead of good. But whenever there's good news, you know, we like to talk about good news. And this is really good news. And by the way, they've got the identity of Jesus right. He is the Christ. And we want to get it right. So it's right and it's good. Why not talk about it? That's the question. And, and so that question is what we're going to, you know, address in our time together. And in order to address that, I want you to see these, these three views of Jesus that are articulated in this text are true, and they're actually interdependent, so they're not at odds with each other, as we'll see, but one is at the core, and it's the headwaters of all the others. That's the Christ piece, as we'll see. So here's where we're going. I'm going to look at all three of these identities. Some say Jesus is like John the Baptist. That's the source of individual ethics, like John the Baptist. Some say he's like Elijah or a prophet. That's the source of systemic ethical issues in a culture. And, and then he's the Christ. So we want to look at those three, each one having something to teach us. And then we'll see how they hold together. So uh, the source of individual ethics. Some say you're like John the Baptist. Well, why, why? in what sense is John a source of individual ethics? Because when John spoke in Luke 3, um, the response to his teaching was like this. People's hearts were, you know, convicted, and they said, Luke 3, Luke 3, they said, what should we do? And then Jesus had specific answers. Oh, you're a soldier? Do this. Oh, you're a religious leader? Do that. Oh, you're a wealthy guy? Do that. And then, you know, people went off and, you know, did things in response to John's uh, teaching. And and this is a thing, right? Because Jesus is the same way with individuals. Jesus will meet an individual and speak to that individual about their particular situation. It's the woman at the well with five husbands. It's the woman caught in adultery in John 8. It's Nicodemus in John 3. It's Zacchaeus, the little short guy who's up in a tree who comes down, he's a tax collector. It's every disciple. They're unique individual issues specifically addressed because Jesus is a teacher and he's still teaching today. There are people, you know, in the community of faith who are fed up with their drinking and they go sober. They're fed up with their addiction to porn and and they come clean and they move to purity. They move from cynicism to hope. They move from fear to courage. They move from, you know, greed to generosity. People are moving by virtue of encountering Christ because the Holy Spirit convicts us and we move. That's teaching. That's what John the Baptist did. Jesus did it too. And I want to just emphasize, you know, many times when I hear sermons on this, I hear, uh, you know, who do people say that I am? Oh, you're like John the Baptist. Idiot, wrong. 
Oh, you're like the prophets. And wrong. Oh, you're Christ. You win, you know, door number three. No. They're all right answers. But one is more important than all the others. So, like, Jesus was and is a teacher, and it's incumbent upon us then to listen and embrace our call to, watch this, personal responsibility, which, by the way, is a phrase that's fallen on hard times uh, in this particular culture. You don't get to live the Christian life vicariously by, you know, sitting here and thinking, oh, if I sit here, then all this holiness is going to rub off on me somehow. Jesus is going to be impressed. No, we never live the Christian life vicariously. We live the Christian life because each individual sitting here in the room is called to follow Jesus. That phrase, accepting Jesus as your personal Savior, has fallen on hard times. Um, it's, it's been dismissed. I've dismissed it at times because we don't want to overemphasize it. But it should not disappear because when the day is done, you will leave here as an individual and you have choices to make. Will I follow this or will I not? That's individual responsibility. And so each individual person is called to follow Jesus. And for each of us, this will require unique movement, unique response, unique repentance. And if I minimize or neglect this, I miss a fundamental essential for discipleship. Like everywhere I go and speak, you know, I'll, I'll give a talk and I'll have something in mind as to how I think people might want to respond. And then people will come up to me and they'll say, you know, when you were talking about this, you know, I realized I needed to come clean in this area of life over here. And I'm amazed because I wasn't talking about that at all, right? And I go, were you listening to me or did you have a podcast on, you know, while I was talking because I, had, I didn't say anything about marriage and now you want to go home and, and get counseling. What's that about? Well, it's about the Holy Spirit speaking to you as an individual, right? So we have to take that seriously. I was just in Sweden and it was the last week of school uh, so the students were very kumbaya, you know, they're hugging each other and hanging out and it's sad to go their separate ways. But then this guy gets up to last night in the testimony time and he said, well, Richard said, which I did say just the, the day before, Richard said, we're born alone, we die alone. So it's important that we leave here alone and realize Jesus is with us. Absolutely true, right? Always in the room, personal responsibility. In the end, here's the other thing that you see here. Jesus didn't come to earth, live, teach, heal, die, rise again in order to change your beliefs. Your beliefs need changing, as do mine. But in, in the judgment picture painted in Matthew, people are separated in the sheep and goats, as you know, you know, my left and my right. Which, by the way, I'm left-handed. Why are the bad people always on the left? But whatever. Go, on my left. Well, what does he say about the people on the left? Go over there, you losers. You did not understand the doctrine of total depravity. Is that what he says? No. Yeah, you didn't articulate my deity right. You used the word inspired about the Bible instead of inerrant. Get out of here. That's not Jesus. What does he say? He said, with the problem, people, I was naked and you didn't put any clothes on me. I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was in prison, you didn't visit me. Look, like you never embodied 
what it means to be a Christ follower. It's not what you say you believe that is your like validation of your faith claims. It's how you live. And I'm just up to here with people who have like a beautiful Nicene Creed and are angry, bitter, spiteful, arrogant people. Enough. That's why people are leaving the church. Let's rearticulate that the like the the point of it all is for us to look like Jesus. And that's some say you're some say you're a teacher, calling people to a higher life. And he is. But it's not enough. Because second observation, you know, some say you're like Elijah and the prophets. Well, the prophets, their, their vision was for systemic ethical change. So, you know, John the Baptist, teacher, individual change, prophets, systemic ethical change. Let me explain what I mean by that. The prophet's main task was not predicting the future, and it wasn't changing individual behavior. When you look at the prophets, the prophets are addressing cultural issues. So Isaiah 58, for example, here's the nation of Israel, and, you know, the Assyrians are knocking on the, you know, border and that kind of thing, and it's bad news. Their, their nation is in decline, if that sounds familiar, right? So nation is in decline, and, they're, and then they're, they're like this. They're talking to Isaiah. Hey, we're praying and fasting. What's up? How come, how come nothing, you know, God doesn't seem to be hearing our prayers? And Isaiah says, well, here's why. Because, you know, as a whole, as a culture, as a culture, you're unjust. A, you're ignoring the Sabbath. B, you know, you hire people and you don't pay them. You know, C, uh, you're neglecting the widow and the orphan and the immigrant. So change your immigration policy. Pay your workers a living wage so they don't have to work three jobs to afford rent. That's justice. And by the way, that's not individual, it's systemic. Prophets address systemic issues. There's a community called Iona. It's a Celtic community on the west coast of Scotland. Has many members, but the members don't live there. They're scattered around the world. And they're, they're, they exist as a prophetic call toward embodying Christ's ethical kingdom reign. So, you know, they're out talking about racism and gun violence and systemic hunger and the gap between the rich and the poor that's increasing, and the fact that there are more refugees and immigrants fleeing violence and hunger now than at any moment in history, and they're creating conversations around how faith should speak to these things and consumerism and climate change, and how our responsibilities must extend beyond our personal choices to address systemic issues, our collective voice calling for change. Brian Stevenson is a prophet in America, like Just Mercy, and uh, the uh, lynching museum in the South. I mean, like holding up this mirror and saying, look, this is our history. That's important. And by the way, Jesus did the same thing. Exposed systemic sin, collective greed, collective addictions to power and comfort, collective nationalism, collective denial of the need for transformation, which of course is the biggest problem of all. Jesus wasn't killed because a few people were upset about his teaching on sex. John the Baptist was, but not Jesus. Jesus was killed because the systemic power structures of Rome and Rome's puppets and the zealots and Pharisees and Herodians that constituted Judaism, all of them were threatened by this kingdom that is, quote, not of this world. And so they all conspired together to kill Jesus because their systems were at risk. 
This is why systemic issues are important. This is why caring for immigrants from South America and Afghanistan and Ukraine, as we do in our partnership with World Relief, is, is part of faith. This is why housing matters and climate change matter and prison conditions matter. And, and it's why discussions about collectively confessing our national sins around the issue of race and colonialism matter. It's why we partner with Commons and Agros and Duwamish, why we're working as a staff on matters of racial justice. Because God's vision for shalom is by its very nature a vision for flourishing for all people, not some people at the expense of others. Everybody has to win. So uh, Jesus is a teacher like John the Baptist. He's a prophet like Elijah. And these two taken together are in and of themselves really good things. Like we need vision for personal transformation. And I got to own up to my personal responsibility, my sexual choices, my financial choices, my time choices, my marriage, my family, my work ethic, all that stuff. Yeah. And I'm part of a nation and part of a community of faith and and part of a city. And I'm, I'm Jeremiah 9, I'm working for the good of all of those. And there are systemic issues. So I got I to be on that train as well, right? So both are true. And uh, I'm just going to make a couple of observations here before we continue. If you kind of fly at 10,000 feet above the political and theological left in our culture, the overwhelming focus is on systemic issues minimizing the issue of personal responsibility. Do you know what I mean by that? In other words, you fly, you fly up here, it's like this. Yeah, I'll tell you why there's homeless people. Facebook and Google, and, and particularly in our setting, Amazon, and all those wealthy people are gobbling up all the houses and people can't afford housing. And if we just, you know, if we fix the prison system and regulate Facebook and make Amazon pay their taxes, the housing problem will magically be solved. No, it won't. Like, systemic stuff will never be a complete solution because personal responsibility matters. But meanwhile, on the right, the focus is what? Personal responsibility. You know, people are jog- I've, I've heard it at Green Lake. Jogger, homeless person, get a job. Oh, well, thank you. I hadn't thought of that. I'll just run right out now and get a job. And then my tent will magically disappear and I'll live in Broadview. Really? Come on. Don't be so naive as to think that, you know, individual responsibility will enable you all by yourself to rise above systemic issues. It doesn't. So as a result, both sides are trying to solve universal problems with partial solutions. But even if you said, you know what, Richard, you're right. Jesus is actually... You know, both of those things. So we need individual responsibility and systemic healing. Yes, preach it. I'd say, yeah, it's not enough. Because those two things by themselves can only cast a vision of what the world ought to be like. So I'm called as an individual, you know, to a higher standard. I'm called to change my relationship with my appetites, with my money, with my wife, with my thought life, to live in the present moment. I'm called to all of that. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm called as part of this community that is Bethany, that is Seattle, that is Washington State, that is America. I'm called to be a voice 
in addressing immigration and poverty and class warfare and all that and pollution and climate change. Yes, 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 yes. But we, you know, so we have a vision, but nothing happens. That's exactly where we live. It's great to have concerts about climate change, but there's more carbon in the air this year than last. Not change, nothing's changing. So what's needed? Well, the third thing's needed. Who do you say that I am? What did, what did uh, Peter say? Christ. That's the answer. But we got to stop here and really talk about what that means, Christ. First of all, though, it does mean this. Christ is much more than like a source of collective and individual ethical transformation, much more than just a vision for living differently. So we have to ask the question, what, is Christ, what does the Christ mean? What does that phrase, the Christ, mean? Well, literally, the word Christ means anointed one. And in Hebrew culture, when someone's anointed, like they're called to a specific task or set of tasks, right? So this morning, Phil is anointed to read scripture. I'm anointed to teach and preach. Eric's anointed to play. So what is, like, to what is Jesus anointed? Colossians 1, 13 to 20 is the best place to go for answers. And I won't read all that just for the sake of time, but I'll give you a brief, you know, summary of, of what Paul the visionary says there because he really understands, the, you know, the power of Christ. This is, this is the thing. Uh, Jesus, the Christ, is anointed. First, number one, he's rescuing us from the domain of darkness, transferring us to the kingdom of light. So I'm moving out of, you know, the buying and selling and domination model that creates, uh, you know, Ukraine and uh, the genocide in Rwanda and homelessness here. That domination model, I'm moving out of that into the shalom model. I'm being transferred out of one kingdom into another. He's redeeming me. That's the central story of Good Friday, uh, Colossians 1.14. He, Christ, is the creator of all things, which is in this text in verse 16, which means that every created being is made for a divine purpose. Every created being. This is why in the scriptures, the rivers and trees are praising God, and the heavens are preaching, and the birds are teaching. Remember the birds teaching, Matthew 6? Hey, look at the sparrow. Look at the sparrow. Pay attention. I'm trying to teach you something to the bird who, by the way, I created. So like, like because Christ has infused everything with life, everything is made for God's glory, and I can learn from everything. Yesterday, I was driving down here, and I've just been away for two weeks, my dog, my new little dog, who's this big, 11 pounds, misses, missed me desperately. We're trying to teach him to be off-leash a little bit. He was in the backyard on what is presently six feet of snow, running around with his cousin or whoever he is, like the, the corgi that is my daughter's dog. They're playing, playing, playing. And I'm like, I'm just going to leave quietly because if I make a scene, he'll, he's, a, he, he's a husky, so he's very verbal. And he'll howl, right? So I'm just going to leave. So I, you know, I walk out of the backyard, got my backpack, get in the car. I'm driving away, and I haven't gone 100 yards. The phone rings in my car. You know, I push a button. It's my son-in-law back in the house. Richard, stop the car. Oh, okay. So I stop the car. He says, open the door. Is this a joke? What's he doing? I open the door. There's my dog. 
Hops in the car. He's like this, Dad, good. Where are we going? Going to Seattle? He puts his paws up on the, on the thing and it's got his window, his nose right at the window. Where are we going? Where are we going? And I turn around and he's immediately suspicious. And then we get back to the house and my wife is there. She opens the door. She picks him up. He starts howling. I'm not going, you know. I want to be with Dad. And then, you know, I spend another 10 miles just really convicted by that little incident and my relationship with Christ. Do you understand what I mean? Oh, yeah, Jesus, I'll see you later. Have a good time in Seattle. Thanks for giving me some space because I've got my own thoughts, my own appetites, my own will. See you Monday. No. I will follow you. That's what Jesus, that's discipleship. Learning it from my dog. All that to say, Christ, creator of all things, all things teachers. Then, of course, Christ, the perfect expression of God, verse 19. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. In other words, you find not just teaching for individuals and prophetic calls to repentance so that systemic sins might end. In this one person, uh, you find the full and perfect expression of divine life made visible in a human. So since we've been made to embody the character of God as image bearers, we look at Jesus and we're like this. Jesus did that. Jesus expressed the life of God. Why? Christ. The Christ spirit enabling him, enabling him to be the perfect expression of justice, mercy, strength, service, joy, wisdom, humility, and of course, sacrificial self-giving love, which is at the heart of the universe. If the story ended there, it would be depressing news because Jesus, as an anointed example, can only reinforce what I am not. But Colossians continues, to this mystery hidden from previous generations, now revealed to Paul, Colossians 1, 26 and 27, Christ, not only in Jesus, but watch this, Christ in you, that's the hope of glory. You have the same capacity to be the presence of wisdom and courage and compassion and justice and service and and self-giving sacrificial love as Jesus. Why? Christ in him, Christ in you. This means you're connected to the source. Oh, yeah, Richard, you, no, no, you don't know me. Because just last night, you know, I was on the internet, and pretty soon I found myself in the dark web of whatever. Christ not in me. Oh, yeah, Christ there. Just hidden. Oh, you don't know me. We had a big fight last night. Really? You want to hear about mine? Yeah, Christ is there, just hidden. Look at it. Whether you feel it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you live it consistently or not, here's the reality. This is the reality. I'm telling you this morning. This is the reality. The creator of the universe and all the power and capacity to embody the character of God is in you because Christ is in you. Like, say something. Amen. I believe it, or walk out. I don't care what you do, but get on the board. Because until we really are deeply rooted in this identity, we're going to keep thinking that Christianity is about sin management and getting a ticket stamp to go to heaven. And it's not. It's about being the presence of justice and mercy and hope and love and hospitality and healing in this world. If you're connected to Christ, 
You're called to live out from the source Christ. That is your only foundational identity. You do stuff, but who are you? In Christ. That's it. Jesus didn't want people talking about him until after the whole story was told, because the whole story of what it means to be Christ would not be seen until the cross and resurrection. That's the thing. So even after Peter declares him to be Christ, Jesus still says, don't tell anyone. And then later, of course, he says, hey, go into all the world and preach, but only after you get it. Well, what, how did they get it? They got it because of the cross and, and everything leading up to it. I mean, when Jesus serves communion, even to Judas, we realize that God's love is deeper and more inclusive than anything performance-based, and frankly, than anything we offer. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, come. If you're part of the club. No. It's not our prerogative. When, when he heals the soldier's ear that Peter cuts off, realize that God's blessings aren't confined to those who are on the right team. I mean, this guy came to arrest Jesus, and Jesus heals him. And then, you know, Jesus is hanging on the cross, and, and there's people shouting curses at him and mocking him, having already beat him and spit on him. And what does Jesus say? I'll show you. No, no, no. Remember him? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And we realize then that God's mercy isn't even contingent on my confession or saying the right things. God's mercy is preemptive. God is trying to show us that for all of humanity, God is infinitely irrevocably, unconditionally for us. Man, we need that. We got to receive it, and we got to start living it. And they, they only got it afterwards. So that Peter would then preach in, you know, in um, Acts 2, this one that you guys killed is Christ. And he's calling you now to move away from the ground of your kind of shallow identity. You know, I'm a Roman. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a six-figure guy. I'm a homeowner. Whatever. Sweep it away. Fine. But this is your identity. I'm the presence of God's character in the world because Christ is in me. That's your calling. This sabbatical that I was just telling you about, you know, the last time I was here at this pulpit was, I think, November 6th or 7th or something like that. And then, you know, like a week of, yay, nothing to do. And then, then it's Thanksgiving, and then it's all the Christmas stuff that is a month with a lot of skiing, too. And then, uh, and then it, it rained right after New Year's Day up where I live a lot, and then it went into a deep freeze, like five degrees. And so, like, skiing was horrific in January. You couldn't ski. You couldn't ski. You couldn't even walk because it was, it was just a whole town was an ice cube. So, you know, here I am at, like, at home with nothing to do. I remember sitting with my wife, and we had the, the most profound conversation sabbatical was this moment where I got a little teary. I said, you know, I'm I'm not the senior guy anymore. I got to let go. I got to let go. And then uh, she was like, 
yeah, that's too bad. And then she walks away. <laughs> and then I'm like, and then I stayed and I journaled. That's not the only thing I got to let go of, man. I mean, that's been my, like, I wouldn't say it ever, but it was true. That's my identity. That's my identity. Oh, that and the books, you know, and the reputation and the teaching ministry beyond the walls of Bethany. And I thought, you know, light a match to each one of those and say, you know what, whatever, whatever, whatever. It's not who I am. Because who I am is irrevocable. I'll take it with me to the grave and beyond. Who am I? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a child of God filled with nothing less than the Christ spirit who will enable me to be hope and justice and mercy and hospitality and sacrificial love laying down my life. I can, that's who I'm called to be. That's who I am. And you, are you? That's why we're here to help each other get out of our own ways so that we can be the presence of hope in the world. May that be our story together. Father, meet us now as we respond. I pray that in our response, just speak to us about any identity other than I am in Christ that defines us. If we need to do business with you and kind of lay those down, we want to do that now, Father. But thank you that uh, everything could be taken and we can be unshaken because the one thing that will never be taken is the reality that we're united with Christ. What a gift. Open our eyes to it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.